Jay Sigurd here, Starting Point Podcast. We're talking science, faith, and a whole lot more. Buckle up, because it's go time. Jay Sigurd here. Thanks for joining me on today's broadcast. We are headed back into part four of Creation in Six Days. We took a very brief interlude, one episode, to do something related to Christmas because it was Christmas time. I think we were about four days before Christmas, three or four. So it was very apropos that we did that. If you missed it, it's actually really, really interesting, something very different than you probably ever heard before related to Christmas. It should be very helpful. But we're back talking about creation in six days. This is an extremely challenging topic to cover. There is so much to it. That's why we're on part four and we're not done yet. You will not want to miss a single episode. But before we delve in today's episode, um, you want to subscribe to these podcasts. If you haven't already, again, please tell your friends about them. We want to broaden our audience. And then if you can leave a five-star review, that always helps and is appreciated very much by me. So what can you expect today? Well, we're going to be really fleshing out the significance of this issue. Uh, why does it really even matter? What's at stake? Who really cares? Why in the world are we talking about this? Those are great questions. Those are important questions. I'm going to give you a little bit more information about that. And then we'll jump into the rest of our outline. And as a quick review, I mentioned last time, we've only got two options regarding this creation in six days issue, which, yes, is related to the age of the earth. One option is something in the range of billions of years, typically 4.6 billion for the age of the earth. That's the majority of you among scientists. The second option would be something in the range of thousands of years. Typically, if you're taking the Bible seriously, it seems like you got about 6,000 years of history there, plus or minus, whatever. Um, nothing in the middle really seems to cut it. doesn't satisfy the secular scientist, you know, at being 300 million years old or whatever. And biblically speaking, if you, you know, get it down to 29,000 years old, it still is rough fitting that in with the chronologies and all that. So, those are two major options. And then the outline for this series, number one, talking about the significance, which we'll wrap up today. And then number two, uh, what does the Bible actually say about this? We have to kind of take a look at the text if we ignore that at all, you know, altogether. It doesn't pay to do this series, really. And then thirdly, we will take a look at what do we really learn from the science. And a lot of people are really itching to get there. I understand that. And it'll be worth the wait, and it'll be really exciting. New stuff. So, new stuff related to the significance of this issue. If you really want this episode to be impactful, meaning to fully understand the significance of the significance, you absolutely must have heard the previous episodes. There's so much meat in the previous episodes. A lot of it keeps people from just shutting down the topic altogether before they've even heard any details. So it was all very necessary, and it gives us a foundation to build on what we're going to be talking about today. I've already mentioned that my audience consists of people from a variety of backgrounds. And as a reminder, this current podcast episode is directed mainly towards those who believe in God and claim that they believe the Bible. However, um, those of you who are not leaning that way should easily be able to understand that what I am sharing 
makes perfect sense for those who do believe in God and the Bible. In fact, the skeptic will most likely conclude that what they are hearing in today's episode should be the position of the Christian. In fact, it's often the case that the skeptic understands this better than the Christian. Seriously. And you'll understand that as we get further into this. Um, Some Christians, for a number of reasons, they'll work very hard at changing their view of the straightforward understanding of the Bible in attempt to make it compatible what they are with what they are hearing from secular sources, whether it's you know scientific or otherwise. They'd like, so to speak, the best of both worlds. In some cases, that's not a bad idea and can work out very well. But in any case involving the Bible, it's never wise to change the clear meaning of the text an effort to appease anyone else ever. Keep in mind that we didn't even have science for most of history. So what were the Jews and Christians supposed to do when reading the Bible? We'll get to that in more detail when we cover what the biblical text actually conveys. Uh, Next, I'd like to go off the board with quotes from famous skeptics for $500. Um, The question is, which famous skeptic said the following? Okay, a little game show humor. I don't really need you to guess who this quote is from. I just want you to see how powerful it is coming from arguably the world's leading atheist, yes, Richard Dawkins. Whenever I mention Dawkins, I always tell my audience that I actually appreciate him. He's almost always pretty clear about what he believes. You usually don't have to ask, so Richard, how do you really feel about that? <laughs> Uh, take, for example, the following quote, and I, I don't have this one memorized, so I have to read it, and I have to read it slowly because there are so many rarely used adjectives. And as a reminder, I, as much as I can, try to remember to say, quote, unquote. I can't stand it when I'm listening to an audio and they're giving you a quote, and they start out, and you're like, wow, this is amazing, And then they end with something, you're like, I can't believe they said that. Well, guess what? They didn't say that. That was an additional comment from whoever's speaking. But you you can't tell the difference. Is it a quote over? Is that your commentary? Was that part of the quote? You just don't know. So I'm going to try to be consistent with saying quote, unquote. So here's a quote, just as an example of Richard being pretty clear. Here's his quote, and it's about how he feels about God. Quote, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, felicital, pestilential, megalomaniacal, (laughs) megalomaniacal, Maniacal. There we go. Mega, megalomaniacal. That's the toughest one. Sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Unquote. So there's a lot in there, especially the megalomaniacal. Still can't do that one. Try that one sometime. Anyway, there's a lot in there. You don't have to say, so Richard, what do you really think about God? Well, When I did my series on evolution, I didn't take the time to cover the subtopic of theistic 
evolution, which is an approach that purports to meld two views together seamlessly. The, the idea of Darwinian evolution and supernatural involvement by God, whichever God, maybe even the God of the Bible. So here's a setup of another quote I want to give you, also from Richard Dawkins. Uh, Richard is responding to those Christians who attempt to meld these two views together, that God used evolution. See if you can figure out if their efforts impressed Dawkins or not. Here's his quote. Oh, but of course, did I say quote? I got to say quote, unquote. Quote, oh, but of course, the story of Adam and Eve was only ever symbolic, wasn't it? Symbolic? So, in order to impress himself, Jesus had himself tortured and executed in vicarious punishment for a symbolic sin committed by a non-existent individual, as I said, barking mad, as well as viciously unpleasant. It seems to me an odd proposition that we should adhere to some parts of the Bible story, but not to others. After all, when it comes to important moral questions, by what standards do we cherry-pick the Bible? Why bother with the Bible at all if we have the ability to pick and choose from it what is right and what is wrong? Unquote. I always say I would pay good money to go on a speaking tour with Richard and say, Hey, Richard, tell, tell the audience that thing that you said before. You know, that the one about Christians who combine evolution and the Bible. <laughs> he gets it. He gets it better than many Christians that the idea of Darwinian evolution has no place in Scripture. It's not supported by the text. You could force it in there, but you're doing a great disservice to the text and what God inspired those writers to pen. Uh, again, sometime I'll do a series on that, but I just wanted you to know that here's one of the world's leading skeptics and atheists pointing out the two don't go together, even though Christians often try to put the two together. They're not as concerned what Scripture actually says. So the overall significance of what we're covering in this Christian uh, Creation in Six Days podcast series isn't really so much about the age of the earth as it is about the authority of Scripture. I mentioned that quite a while back, probably in the first episode. So again, keep that in mind. We're talking about can we trust Scripture that's the focus more than the actual age of the earth. Yes, we will discuss the age of the earth, but the bigger picture is always, do we trust what the Bible says or do we think we know better for whatever reason? Now, for the Christian, if it turns out that the biblical text does not support current secular views about the age of the earth or the origin of the universe or the history of life on this planet, etc., whatever, what are you going to go with? Seriously, that is a huge question. If the two don't really seem to go together, which one do you go with? If you can't have both, which one are you going to choose? And that's an open-ended question for right now. I seriously want you to think about that and decide. And hopefully this series will help you in you personally coming to a decision and not being forced into it or intimidated or anything, but really thinking it through, coming up with a conclusion and then being able to defend it. Again, for the skeptic who doesn't see the Bible as a reliable source of information when it comes to things like you know, the origin of the universe or the origin of life, what do they care? They don't care what it says. It doesn't deserve any serious thought at all. It, it wouldn't make any sense for them. They, they don't think the Bible is the inspired word of God. They don't care what the actual words are. I get that. 
On the other hand, if the Christian references the Bible in defense of their view regarding how one gets to heaven, how will they justify writing off other portions of Scripture as not necessarily trustworthy? If we can't trust the Bible about the beginning, how can we magically trust it about anything else? Seriously. On what basis do you pick and choose, like Dawkins so eloquently stated, you know, how do you know? Well, yeah, you can trust this, but oh, this portion, that doesn't mean that. But this portion means that, and this one doesn't, and back and forth, and and different people have different ideas of which passages are trustworthy and which ones aren't. It's Again, it's really all mixed up. Uh, quick real-life story. There was a church service from a pretty conservative church in general where the pastor made the statement that Genesis doesn't mean what it actually says. And then he went on to explain, well, we've learned a lot through modern science about the Big Bang and evolution, and so we know now that Genesis doesn't actually mean what what you're reading there because we have advanced knowledge. Afterwards, a 12-year-old girl who had been in the congregation very sincerely asked her mom, if Genesis doesn't mean what it says, when does God start telling the truth? She just wanted to know. That's a good question. If you're reading this, but it doesn't mean that, at what point does it mean what it says? Like, where do we start believing that? I've studied for a while, a long while, and I'm pretty sure I know what verse that all that serious stuff starts with. It's called Genesis 1-1, the very first verse, all the way through the end. You can trust the entire thing all the way through. We've talked about that in a series in the past, the inspiration of the Bible. But then... You can say, well, I know, I know I can trust the Jesus stuff. I, I know that's true. Really? Why? Based, based on what? How do you know you can magically trust the Jesus stuff? You know, In other words, you believe the Bible when you think it is backed up by your understanding of science. Well, how do you know you can trust your understanding of science? What do you do when the scientific experts change their minds? What do you do when the experts disagree with each other? It becomes a can of worms. In any case, you would be serving as the ultimate source of authority. Even though you say you're going with what the majority of experts believe, you are choosing to decide they are correct in which direction to go when they disagree. So again, that puts you as the ultimate arbiter of truth, which which should be a red flag, could be very dangerous when we put ourselves in those positions. And I'm sure I'll share this next story again whenever I cover the topic of theistic evolution, the idea that God used evolution. But it's apropos to our discussion here on on how we view the Bible. And here's the background. I was speaking in this city where there's a prominent Christian university, and I am leaving out um, a lot of extremely interesting information for now, just partially to save time, but partially because I don't want to make it all about this particular Christian university because they're not the only ones. It is an interesting story, but I don't really have to share the name right now. And again, I'm not trying to belittle them or anyone else, but the story's pretty powerful. So I was not allowed to speak on campus at this Christian university. Um, So I ended up having to speak in town because this university, 
They don't support a literal genesis across the board. Some of their professors do, many don't. And so they just, they don't really take a stand. And they did not want to allow my view to be presented on campus, even though it's, mine's a basic, it's a historical view we've had for most of history by using scripture. And many people today still view that, but they didn't want me to be on campus, even though I don't even charge anything. And I do it very graciously and very respectfully. They just, they said no. So fine. Some other guys ended up flying me to this state and they, they rented a hall in town. So I went down there to give three talks, Friday night and Saturday morning. One Friday night, two Saturday morning. Friday night was just an introductory talk, laying some groundwork. So while doing the first presentation, uh, we went to Q&A. And a professor who was there in attendance, he was from that Christian university, he stood up and arrogantly stated, he said, I'm Dr. So-and-so, professor of Old Testament at the name of the university, and I think that what you're doing is damaging to the students. What did he mean? What he meant was, it is damaging for me to tell the students they can actually trust what they're reading in Genesis. When they read it, that's what it means. Why is that dangerous? Because in his estimation, they would hear that message only to find out later Oh, that's not true because we've learned all these other things about science, and so that can't be true, and that's going to be devastating to them to find that out at that point. Well, there's a lot I could say about that, but I'm going to I'm going to keep moving. After the whole meeting was over, he approached me. Now, again, this is professor from the university, professor of Old Testament, who you know believes in God, says he believes in the Bible. I I don't doubt that he has apparently a different view of the Bible, and I don't doubt his Christianity. But so here's an educated professor at a Christian university who's totally um, sold out on, on evolution because the majority of scientists believe in evolution, so that's why he believes in evolution, so therefore God must have used evolution. That's his backstory. So now he's approaching me, and he says to me, he goes, how could all the scientists be wrong? Again, meaning evolution has to be right because all the scientists believe in it. Now, it's not literally all, but certainly... a a larger majority. So he said, how could all the scientists be wrong? And I just looked at him and I asked him a question. I said, do you think that most scientists believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? He said, no. I said, how could all the scientists be wrong? And I wasn't saying that sarcastically. I was using his logic. A certain thing must be true because the vast majority of scientists believe that. But then when he admitted the vast majority of scientists don't believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, he's willing to say, well, they're wrong. Well, wait a minute. You should say, well, they must be right about that because it's the vast majority and they're scientists and they know what they're talking about. And if they've disproven the Bible, you got to go with that. So he was being very inconsistent with his logic. And that was all I was pointing out. There's a lot more to that story, but I'm going to I'm gonna keep moving. Um, so you might be thinking, okay, so maybe, maybe the age of the earth is a more significant than I initially thought, but is it really a matter of salvation? Again, uh, most of you probably are, are Christians, and this is one of the things that comes up all the time. Like, okay, you know, people keep bringing up this issue, but it's really not that important, and is it, it's, not, it's not really a, an issue of salvation, so why are you making a big deal out of that? Well, let's take a look at some scripture. This is from Romans 10, verse 9. It says that if you confess with your mouth 
Jesus is Lord, and have the correct view regarding the age of the earth, thou shalt be saved. Now, that's the JKV, not the KJV, the King James Version. This is the JKV, which is the just kidding version. (laughs) You probably recognize that right away, a little bit of humor or attempted humor. That's not what that verse says. The verse actually says, again, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is belief in the age of the earth, the correct belief, a requirement for salvation? No, absolutely not. Not directly. (laughs) There's an indirect connection, and it's actually foundational as part of the gospel message and the necessity of Jesus Christ coming and dying on a cross. I will get to that in more detail later. It's a very interesting connection and very eye-opening. So no, it's not a requirement for salvation, but you're going to be surprised how important it is and how closely connected it is. Along the same lines of reasoning, can you be pro-choice and still get to heaven? I believe the answer is clearly yes. You, you, you can. However, you would be living in contradiction to what we find in Scripture. Your particular view on abortion would be contrary to Scripture, even though you're claiming the validity of Scripture for your salvation. It wouldn't mean that you're not saved, just that you're being inconsistent with your view of Scripture. So you can be wrong about quite a few issues and still get to heaven, but you cannot be wrong about the gospel message, which is that our salvation is by faith alone, faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as full payment for our sins. It is not by our good works. It's not by our own efforts. If you have any questions about that, I urge you to read a number of passages, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, Romans chapter 3, verse 28, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, and there are a bunch of others that make it so crystal clear that our salvation is totally in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and are placing our faith in that and not by our own efforts of trying to be good or better or anything like that. So not to get off on a tangent, but even if I did, it would be the most important tangent possible. Um, This really summarizes the difference between religion and Christianity. It's do versus done. Religion is all about what you do, do. I think it just said (laughs) do-do. I I think, in a sense, religion is (laughs) do-do. It's about what you do. You got to do this, you can't do that, all these things to maybe achieve the standard. You're never quite sure if you made it or not, and you usually construct a standard that you have qualified for so you can feel better about it. Christianity is not about what we do. It's about what was done. Jesus died on a cross, and he said, it is finished. He completed the work that was necessary for our salvation. So it's do versus done. Religion is all about what you do, and you're never quite sure. Rules and regulations. Christianity is about a relationship with the one who did it. He, It is done. He finished it. So again, a little bit of a tangent, but super important. Back on track. 
talking about the age of the earth again. Some people said I'd rather talk about the rock of ages than the age of rocks, which is kind of clever and I guess I'd feel the same way. But moving on to the significance of this again, the importance of time. So let's kind of extract anything religiously related out of this for a second and just think about time and the importance. Is the amount of time important or not? I'm going to give you a quote from George Wald. He was a Nobel Prize winner in physiology. Um, And this quote is from Scientific American, a very prestigious scientific journal. This is from back in 1954. And no, I was not alive back then. (laughs) Why am I giving you some old quote? I'm giving you an old quote because I want you to know that this issue we're dealing with now has been very important for a long time, and they've admitted it for a long time, even even prior to this, prior to 1954. And it's a very interesting quote, again, from George Wald, secular scientist. He said, quote, The important point is that since the origin of life belongs in the category of at least once phenomena, time is on its side. However probable we regard this event or any of the steps it involves, given enough time, it will almost certainly happen at least once. And for life as we know it, once may be enough. Time is the hero of the plot. What we regard as impossible on the basis of human experience is meaningless here. Given so much time, the impossible becomes possible. The possible becomes probable, and the probable becomes virtually certain. One only has to wait. Time itself performs the miracles, unquote. (laughs) There is so much in that quote. I could spend a lot of time. I just want to pick out a few things. Time is the hero of the plot. One only has to wait. Time itself performs the miracles. So, Time, we're told, performs miracles. Oh, you can't have God. That's a supernatural thing. You can't have God doing miracles. But they can have time performing miracles. One other thing I'll just pull out randomly. He said, what we regard as impossible on the basis of human experience is meaningless here. What's he saying? What is human experience? That's observation. That's science. All this stuff we're gathering, and we can see, and we can reason through. He goes, that's meaningless. When you have time, nothing you observe today even matters. Time just makes anything possible. Let's let's think about it. All of the secular accounts regarding the origin of the universe and life and evolution of life and dinosaurs and production of oil and coal and all that, they all require tons and tons of time. Millions and billions of years. A quick side note here. Time doesn't actually do anything. It's just a framework within which all events occur. They say, time heals all wounds. That sounds so nice, doesn't it? (laughs) Um, Yeah, it sounds nice until you realize, maybe even from personal experience, that's not true. Time does nothing. Only events occurring within time are capable of actually doing something good or bad. In fact, sometimes it seems like time makes things worse. It really wasn't the time that made it worse. It was the specific actions or lack of that made things worse. 
So time isn't doing anything. But according to that quote, even though it seems impossible to us by what we're observing through real science, forget that because time just makes everything possible. It is magic fairy dust. Time is so critical to these secular theories. And so we want to keep that in mind. Um, Because after all, with enough time, anything is possible. Really? No. Only things that are possible are possible during a period of time. Waiting longer does not allow impossible things to happen. If I open my garage door, will I find that my seven-year-old Honda Civic has morphed into a brand new bright yellow Lamborghini? Uh, No. What if I open the door every day for a week? Nope. How about every day for a year? Nope. How about every day for a hundred years or a thousand years or a million years? Nope. Why not? Because the processes necessary to make such a transformation are not and will not occur. Well, what if circumstances change significantly? I suppose maybe then, but on what basis do you have confidence that the required absolutely bizarre set of conditions will actually arise. There's nothing we see today that would even hint at the extremely bizarre things that would have to occur to turn my Honda into a Lamborghini. This is an entirely separate discussion that would warrant further explanation and exploration, but we're not going to go there right now. I just wanted to to bring up an argument that many use to justify the seemingly impossibility of things like molecules to man evolution or the appearance of our universe out of nothing to begin with. They say, yeah, it doesn't seem possible, but if you have enough time, anything's possible. No, not at all. We'll probably look at that again sometime in more detail in the future. So what happens if all of a sudden you lose your defense of millions and billions of years? Well, you likes, yikes, I mean, you're, you're, you're toast. All of your theories go out the door. All the, all the textbooks are wrong. Many teachers and professors and research scientists, they'd they'd all be out of work because that's all they teach or believe in. Some have spent their whole career believing and teaching those views. It's kind of like the last fortress. You can picture a group of soldiers saying, okay, men, you know, we've, we've given up some valuable ground here when we just couldn't hold it. But this wall here, it's the last barrier between us and the enemy. We absolutely cannot give this up. Yes, we have a few other strongholds, you know, here and there, but none of those will matter if we lose this one. So no matter what, we are not giving up this one, even if we have to die defending it. Well, millions and billions of years, it's just not an option to give that up for many people. You can't even spend one millionth of a second even considering that maybe the millions and billions of years aren't true. You, you, just, you just can't go there. You get shut down right away. It's not an option. Don't even bother thinking it through. No matter what evidence anyone ever brings up, just shut them down because it just can't be. We already know. We already know. We already know. We already know. It can't be. And that's what happens. Well, all right. Time for another personal story that will completely underwhelm you, but I'll, I'll share it anyway. <laughs> I like doing card tricks, and uh, some of them are actually really cool. I am not the greatest magician or anything, and the ones that I do don't require a sleight of hand, but some of them have really 
powerful effects. Well, one of them is the very first trick I ever learned, and it was way back when I was in college. My best friend showed me the trick, uh, which giving the short version involved me freely selecting a card from a bunch of cards that were on the table that were face up. And after a bunch of moves, uh, you know, that I'm skipping for now, all the cards were eventually face down on the table. And they were mixed up. I didn't know what was where. And they were in various groups. And I kept pointing to whichever cards I wished. It was my choice. And then cards were removed. Then I selected from the remaining cards that were face down again. Cards were removed. And then eventually there was only two cards sitting on the table face down. And I made my final choice between the two. So now... There's only one card left on the table, and it's face down. And my friend says, turn it over. And I said, no. And again, he said, turn it over. I said, no, I'm not going to turn it over. He said, why not? I said, because it can't be my card. He said, turn it over. I said, no, I will not turn that card over. I was actually, I wasn't mad at him at all, but I was like, somehow mad, like I'm not turning it over because I know there is no way on earth it it could be my card. And if I turn it over, it's not my card. That's not a card trick, such a disappointment. But if I were to turn it over and it was my card, I'm going to go through the roof because what I would be seeing would be absolutely impossible. I already knew ahead of time it can't be possible. I couldn't even imagine how that card could possibly have been my card. And since I couldn't imagine it, it couldn't actually be my card. In my mind, I knew there is no way, no way on earth that's possibly my card. Until I saw that it was. He turned it over, and it was my card, and I was blown away. I was just stunned. Um, But once I found out how the trick was done, (laughs) it, it was kind of disappointing. It made perfect sense. It's like, oh, my word. That makes so much sense. And it just took the mystery away, which is kind of kind of disappointing. I'd rather kind of live in that, that mystery, like, wow, that was just absolutely amazing. But my point was, I, quote, knew. Not only was that not my card, there is no possible way it could be my card. It didn't pay for me to spend any time thinking it through how he did it, because it just can't be my card until it was. Well, the earth just has to be old. It just has to be. It can't be young. That's crazy. You're crazy and you lack all credibility if you even question the age of the earth. Kind of like the card trick. There's no way that could be my card. Well, there's no sense in even considering the earth is young because it just can't be. It just absolutely can't be. Well, I'm going to wind down from now again and we'll pick up on there's There's other great things that we're going to talk about that will help you put all of this into perspective. And then we can really launch into two lines of defense. What would be the view if we're using scripture to defend a view regarding the age of the earth? And then what everyone's waiting for, what do we conclude when we look at science? Because that's what everyone kind of wants to blow everything else off. Everything I've set up till now, just kind of, you know, humor me, pat me on the shoulder and say, yeah, that's that's really cute. You know, you're bringing all these things up, but nothing, nothing matters because of the science. Okay, we're building towards that. And that's going to be, I think, phenomenal. And especially for those of you who don't really care so much about what scripture says and all that. Uh, it, it'll be well worth the wait, but this is all, this isn't fluff. This is important stuff. So thanks for hanging in there with me. Uh, I'm looking forward to the rest of this series, but please, again, if you can subscribe, if you haven't yet, 
helps us out greatly. Please tell your friends. If you tell them about this series, urge them to go back to, to the part one of this so they, they get the background of this. But again, appreciate you hanging in there and being part of our awesome audience. Look forward to seeing you next time. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Starting Point Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, tell a friend, and please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That's the number one way to help us reach more and more people with these important and inspiring messages. To learn more about myself, Jay Siegert, and The Starting Point Project, please visit us at thestartingpointproject.com. We'll catch you next time.